All right, I've talked about being a young Christian for quite some time, and I've got more to go on that front, but I'll break it up a bit. My dad was given a home computer from his employer for doing work things. However, I don't remember my dad doing much of any work things on the home computer. At the time, if you wanted to bring work home, you had to save your work on a floppy disk, bring it home, and then load it on that computer. This is also during the heyday of PC viruses, so moving Microsoft Office files around from one computer to the next probably generated more prayer than concerns over hunger in America. It had a, at the time, blazing fast US Robotics 14.4 external modem. I'm still nostalgic for the horrible squealing noises it would make, and I could hear the different handshakes between different BBSs or bulletin board services to which I could connect. For the younger listener, BBSs were precursors to the consumer internet and were usually ran on a computer in someone's spare bedroom if they could afford a second or third or fourth phone line. And usually, only a single person could connect to them at a time. There were higher capacity BBSs, but none of them in my area, and it used to be that if you made a phone call, which modems did to make connections too far away, you'd get a hefty phone bill at the end of the month. Now, you can have a video chat with someone in rural China, and it costs nearly nothing. My interactions with the BBSs were the first times that I was treated as an adult, even though I may not even have been 13 at the time. My ideas were considered and taken seriously by adults, and for the first time in my life exposed to ideas that would challenge the dogmas that I grew up with. Some of these were atheists scoffing at their religious for whatever reasons, for which they could do through the safety of the BBS. Doing so in that patch of America that we lived in publicly would have been a socially dangerous move, and possibly physically dangerous move. There were a handful of pagans, which I had never heard of outside of stories about ancient Europe, and there was sex. That taboo topic that we weren't supposed to talk about, but still seemed to talk about a lot. Adults, as it turned out, were just as interested in sexuality as us repressed teenagers, and these adults, although polite and not obscene, had no issues with frank discussions of topics of sex. The borders around what was permissible suddenly felt insignificant, and maybe arbitrary. As the internet grew itself, eventually local dial-up internet service providers came to our little city, and the bulletin board services were mothballed, and we all joined humanity's greatest wonder, the internet. A friend of mine from school educated me on the existence of Usenet groups, or news groups. Again, for the young, news groups are now an ancient part of the internet that could be described as the grandmother of Reddit. He had suggested using it to find pornography, which it was used for, although he was a bit richer, so he had already gotten a 56k modem, which I wouldn't have for a year or so later. So for someone who was trying to download naughty pictures on the down low, when downloading a single picture took minutes, not milliseconds, it required a bit of planning, timing, and an obfuscation. However, I did discover erotic fiction, which downloaded much faster and knocked my socks off with some of the things I didn't know people could do with each other. This was about the time that my parents had heard the call for all good Christian parents to opt their children out of secular schools' sexual education classes because we couldn't have the filth poured into our children's brains, We'll do it ourselves, thank you very much. And then, to the best of my ability to recall, my parents claimed that responsibility. They also absconded from it. I cannot ever remember having the talk. 
Those stories did quite well to liberate me from the idea that human sexuality was something that had to be treated with shame, except under the pure and chaste sanctity of marriage. However, an education in sex coming from the creative and varied minds of amateur authors on the internet did set me up for some missteps in romantic relationships later in life, but to give them a measure of credit with the blame, many of the stories were served with an amount of romance, which certainly didn't hurt later. Furthermore, on the newsgroups was a particular one that held the majority of my online time for years. Alt.folklore.ghost-stories This newsgroup was host for people to swap stories of ghosts, spirits, demons, poltergeists, anything that you could think of that might lurk in the shadows of the supernatural world that lays just on the other side of our own. The Bible doesn't contain too many stories about things that could be considered ghosts, but this was during the height of NBC's Unsolved Mysteries, which not only had episodes featuring murderers and kidnappings and people who have disappeared forever, but also so many ghost stories. I'd been taught that when people die, they go to heaven or hell, but there was quite a few stories in the Bible that made me think that there are shades of gray. Jesus was dead for three days. What happened during that time? Jesus called Lazarus out of his tomb after he had started to rot, so was this guy in eternal paradise? And our Savior said, nah, not yet, pal. Or was his spirit hanging around somewhere else? The book of Revelation tells about the spirits of slaughtered Christians hanging out under an altar somewhere. So maybe we'd get there eventually, but in the meantime, why wouldn't we stick around where we live to rattle chains and not be at rest sometimes? My time on alt.folklore.ghost-stories initially started by focusing on ghosts, but eventually I pivoted to demons. Remember, I had been well-versed in the activities of demons by Frank Peretti, and I also read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, and had spent quite a bit of time going over the works of medieval artists who really made pandemonium and its cast of demons look like a real happening place compared to placid heaven. Demons must be real and must be out there working against the best parts of humanity. And after all, these stories about ghosts in the house scaring the daylights out of people and then those people thinking, well, this must be dear old grandma who passed away a couple of months ago. That doesn't make sense. Why would grandma be knocking plates off of your kitchen counter? It's got to be demons out to ruin your sanity. That was my 13 or 14-year-old logic, at least... If hell and demons are in fact real, I truly doubt that a demon would claw its way out of hell just to make your lights flicker. At that time, I felt that there was more to the supernatural world than what the church had been telling me about. I have mentioned Martin Luther and his complaints against the Catholic Church. Maybe there are other things that were being held back as well. The idea that unclean spirits would swirl around myself and my home and my family lodged rather deeply in my mind and I had decided through study and practice that I could teach myself to perceive their presence and perhaps their intentions. To what ends I would use these skills or information, I don't know if I had planned that far, but it was a big part of my internal world for a long season of my teenage years. Maybe I had wanted to be a better soldier in what our evangelical church called spiritual warfare. Evangelical churches do like to use military terms for its adherence, but we're a religion of peace, right? Whenever I read about teenagers in the news that have done something bizarre, usually violent for unfathomable reasons, I understand. I get it. I understand how a young mind can fixate 
on an idea and see it to an extreme place. When those two girls attempted to murder a classmate as tribute to Slender Man, we were all shocked, but puzzled as to how two young ladies could believe an obvious fabrication of a creature not only existed, but it wanted them to do its bidding. Not me. I understand how that young mind gets from point A to point B, and to boot, I doubt I could find someone who would score America's take on mental health as satisfactory or better. Also during this time, I had a friend who explained that he had become interested in Wicca. This was the occult that I had been warned of, but I was curious. Instead of listening to someone on the radio tell me about how it would destroy my life, I'd get a first-hand look at the small stack of books my friend had. I thumbed through it and didn't see any of the instructions for cannibalizing newborns or disemboweling cats. I did see plenty of interesting rituals for venerating nature, and that seemed like a good thing to do. But the Bible is very clear about witchcraft, and this is what this is. My friend, who I trusted, waved it off and said that Wicca and Christianity are not incompatible. You could be both. As I speak to you now, I disagree with that. I think that there are religions and philosophies that don't step on each other's toes, but this isn't one of those intersections. However, at this time, I was quite skilled at the logical contortions that were required for my trusted friend's statement to make sense, and so we spent a few months doing some spells out of the book, and then I lost interest in hanging out in the woods and drawing complex geometries in a clearing. A few months later, my parents found one of the Wiccan books in my room that I had forgotten about and had a full panic over that. I tried to calm them down and explain that I was admittedly curious, but that was it. It blew over after the book was discarded, or maybe they properly burnt it. I think around the same time my parents found a Dungeons & Dragons Dungeons Master's Guide and had a fit over that one too, which was disappointing since I don't recall ever actually getting to play. I switched to GURPS, another role-playing system, which they were fine with because it didn't have the branding issue, but never played that because all my friends wanted to play Dungeons & Dragons, not whatever this was. So, as a recap, the internet had broadened my horizons on spirituality and sexuality. I had become fixated on the idea that demons roam the foggy nights of my hometown, and I had a brief and boring brush with the occult. I had been warned that black masses would have sexual orgies, but those hadn't happened. Maybe you're supposed to stick with it longer before you get those. I had mentioned to you that a, as I remember, well-written piece of Christian fiction applied to too young of a mind had pushed me into believing that a world of supernatural darkness hunted for my soul and faced that could only be done by either practicing some sort of psychic warfare or putting on the armor of righteousness, which I'm guessing was supposed to be taken metaphorically as an explanation of good character qualities. One of the things that began to chip away at some of those ideas that had been hammered into my head as unquestionable was my parents seemed to have a blind faith in all fiction being appropriate for kids, and I had convinced them to get me a membership to the Science Fiction Book Club. I found out that the company still exists, but you may remember that in the 90s there were a lot of companies that were subscription style that would mail you things. In this case, they would mail me hardback science fiction, fantasy, and horror novels. They would send me so many books, but I could either tell them which ones I'd want from this month's selection or let them choose for me. I did try to read Michael Moorcock's Elric books since I had been warned specifically about his satanic sword, but just couldn't get into the writing. However, I did turn to Fred Saberhagen's The 
Book of Swords series, which featured magical swords that could heal people or kill them from a distance or poison their minds with hopelessness. I did somehow miss Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea books, despite the book club really doing the hard sell for me on them. I did read a tremendous amount of Terry Pratchett's Discworld, which wielded satire in a strange fantasy world to take some shots at our own culture. For anyone who was a Discworld fan, the character Death had to be my overall favorite because of how seriously Death would take everything. Death held an eternal fascination with humanity, but naturally humanity wanted nothing to do with him. I do remember a passage from the book The Hogfather, in which a character named Susan is speaking to Death, and she takes offense when Death remarks that tooth fairies are lies just like justice, mercy, and duty. He responds, then take the universe and grind it down to the finest powder and sieve it through the finest sieve and then show me one atom of justice, one molecule of mercy, and yet you act as if there is some ideal order in the world, as if there is some, some righteousness in the universe by which it may be judged. That stuck with me. However, the speculative fiction authors in the science fiction realm are the ones that really introduced me to some ideas that began to round off the edges of my former education. Octavia Butler's Xenogenesis series comes to mind. If I remember right, this was the first piece of fiction that had a non-white protagonist that I had taken on. The alien race in the books also had three genders, which naturally led to different family and social structures. William Gibson's Neuromancer was beautifully written and packed with ideas that bled between a strange cyberpunk future and our own world. We have sealed ourselves away behind our money, growing inward, generating a seamless universe of self. How true is that for a Westerner? David Brin's The Postman, a post-apocalyptic story that deals heavily with humanity's desperate need to believe in an optimistic lie. Douglas Adams' The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is a very funny book, that begins with the horrific possibility that we are not alone in the universe, but our destruction comes from an uncaring bureaucracy. I did manage to miss books that would have been very valuable to me at that time, such as Orson Scott Card's Ender's Game, or Gene M. Arles' The Clan of the Cave Bear, or really anything by Philip K. Dick. But the single most influential novel was a recommendation, in my sophomore year of high school, I had returned to public schools from the Christian school I'd attended for two years. More on that, um, a lot more on that in just a bit. And there was a very old history teacher whose eyes and ears were most of the way gone that had called me by my last name, which I liked, and told me to smash up a large desk and chuck the pieces into a dumpster behind the high school instead of listening to him teach one day. I couldn't tell you why I was picked or why he couldn't have some of the custodial staff do it, but I suppose when you've been at a public teaching job that long, you can get away with whatever non-criminal whims you might have. So, I did. I busted up that desk with a ball-peen hammer and loaded all of the broken nail-studded pieces into the dumpster and went back inside. I'd missed the bell, and the school had moved on to the next period, for which I was now late. I asked him for a pass to the next class. He sat down and appeared to either have not heard my request for the pass or immediately forgot or just didn't care. He asked me if I'd like to read. I said I did. He told me about Joseph Heller's Catch-22, which two decades on I still haven't read. Then his favorite Kurt Vonnegut Jr. books. He was specific about that Jr. He recommended Cat's Cradle, but I read Slaughterhouse-Five, which included an alien race 
that could remember all of the things that have or will happen, including the destruction of their own species, which they seem indifferent at doing anything to prevent. But that history teacher's strongest recommendation was Robert A. Heinlein. I read Methuselah's Children first, a story which includes people who live much longer than other normal humans and the problems that come with that. Then Starship Troopers, which presented new ideas to me about citizenship, duty, and honor. Then The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, which had interesting ideas about entitlement to public and private resources, oppression, and included plural families, as moon colonists had two or three men for every woman, necessitating a family structure that seemed alien to me, but made sense in the context of the fiction. But the final Heinlein story that I read, one of the few novels I've read more than once, A Stranger in a Strange Land, it's a story about a man raised exclusively by Martians, then returned to Earth, where he does not understand things like clothes or being jealous, and there is a Martian concept that poorly translates to thou art God, and is surprised when humans don't cannibalize their dead. He dabbles in a hedonistic cult with a megachurch, but then turns and creates his own church that embraces what we would call polyamory, or free love, and starts teaching his disciples to speak Martian, which awakens powers in them. If you've seen the more recent movie Arrival, that should sound familiar, the shots to monotheism and monogamy turned around in my head for quite some time. At the time that I was first reading the book, I was also exploring music, and the Who's Tommy struck me as sharing some themes between the primary characters of both works, which helped hold both of these places of importance in my mind. 